For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade man. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I have read through the entire chapter. Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, and scholars tell us that there were more than one letter written to the Corinthians. If we were to piece together some of the wording in this second letter, we'd find that, that there's a letter in between the 1st Corinthians and 2nd Corinthians. Paul had a special affinity or, or a, a, a attraction and attachment to the church at Corinth, he had uh, been involved personally in, their, in spreading the truth and the word of God to them. And while he was 
very involved personally. There were conflicts within the church at Corinth, and I'm thankful that God has allowed us to have a record of what really happened in the church so that it would be evident to all men that would have a, an accusation against Christianity because clearly we see, if we were to read the first letter and the second letter, that there were problems in the church. And yes, they were redeemed, they were Christians, but it teaches us that if we are not careful about our faith, if we're not careful about the relationship that we have with God, if we are not careful about accessing the grace that God gives us, um, we can live a life that is inconsistent with our message. And this doesn't get, this isn't missed by those who would be critical of Christianity. In this chapter in particular, Apostle Paul begins to talk about this idea of of our tabernacle, which is our body, our, our physical body. He says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, meaning that it would come to an end, we would die, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So right away, the perspective is given to us that, and this is so crucial many times, because we need to often remind ourselves that this isn't where it's going to end that our present condition, our physical experience today, the life that we live in this world right now on earth, the, the, what we see is not going to be what's going to last forever. And it's unfortunate that we see things strictly from a natural perspective. And we need to have that spiritual perspective and look beyond One analogy that we can bring to, to understand this fully is that we look at each other and we, we see a, a physical um, appearance of who we are. We, you, may, you may look at me and there are things about me that, that you characterize, that characterize who I am. I, I'm short, I have dark hair, I, I wear glasses, my eyes are greenish brown, um, whatever. You, and and that's, that's the image that you place on, on, on the person, Alan. And, and I, too, as I look across the, the church, every person is different. Physically, they have different appearances. And, and over time, as we get to know one another, we, it's sort of the personality of who you are gets, gets somewhat fused or embedded in, in, who, in what you look like. Um, and our gestures, the, the, the person we are, the way we express ourselves, the um, whether we have a perpetual smile or we don't have a perpetual smile on or whether we, we are skeptical or, or not or whether we are very optimistic and our eyes are always bright and, and we're very hopeful in what's coming around the corner. All these things, you know, unconsciously or subconsciously, we, 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 are, we keep, we're aware of and we, we fuse it all together to say this is who Alan is or this is who this person is. But the reality is that from, from a spiritual perspective, if we were to look beyond that, we would just see simply a living soul. We would see a living soul. And, and that is why we have to be so careful that we don't place such great importance on the outward appearance. We have the example from the Old Testament where Samuel went to, to uh, David's house, David's father's house, Jesse, 
to, to uh, anoint one of Jesse's sons. And as, as, because God had instructed him that this is going to be the future king of Israel. And Samuel thought that clearly, because the former king at the time was Saul, and Saul was tall of stature, a big man, a prominent man, and, and that is somewhat necessary if you're going to lead a nation, that you yourself need to be somewhat of a, not necessarily a, a, an intimidating person because of your height and stature and, and so forth, but, but your presence, your presence must, must seem to be um, large, if you will. And so Samuel was looking for the next prototypical, the next person who would have a presence that would commend him to be a king. Um, and as he went through and, you know, the Bible tells us, surely this must be the one, as every son went by him, because he was looking for those, those physical attributes that he saw to be, um, that would, would make someone fitted for the position of king of a nation. But clearly God had something else in mind, and, and after all the sons were exhausted, and God said that none of these are the ones I've chosen, Samuel asked Jesse, well, do you have any other sons? Oh, yes, I have a young, young son who's out tending the sheep. Bring him here. And, and we know the rest of the story. But God doesn't, God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the soul. And for us, we can extrapolate that, ex- that experience to say that we have to be careful how we look at one another as well. The appearances. What is what we deem to be attractive and not attractive? The Bible talks about what's calmly and not calmly. Um, because in the end, it doesn't really matter. We, are, we have this tabernacle. We have this body. We look the way we look. Neither you nor I had the choice to look the way we look. We were born into the earth at the time that we were born, and our parents were who they were, and they had their genetic makeup, and you have inherited that. We don't have a choice for that. And the value is not in what we look like, it doesn't look like, it, it doesn't matter our appearance. What counts most is the condition of our heart. What counts most is the spiritual, and that's what lasts forever. But we know that in the world, that isn't the case. The world places tremendous value on the outward appearance because they don't, they can't, they don't see anything else other than the physical, the now, and the present. But we know that, that, that beauty is vain. It is only surface deep. And it, and it disappears like a vapor. It disappears so quickly. And it behooves the young people, and, I, and it's interesting because I, uh, how fast time goes by. And when you're young, you, uh, it's unfortunate, but we place tremendous value on the physical and the outward appearance. And, and yet, as we get older, we begin to realize that those things really are not so important. Part of the reason why they're not so important is because they fade so quickly. Strength diminishes, beauty changes, all those things change so quickly. And so we have a limited time here on earth, and we have to overcome the mentality of the world to help us to look at the world from a spiritual perspective. So Apostle Paul says that we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heaven. And that is our perspective. That's where we're going to go eventually. That's the promise when we made a covenant with God as those that were in Ancaster this morning and they saw the, the baptism, which was, which was the, the young man's public uh, statement to the world that he was now entering into this very public 
agreement with God that he has testified that he has died to sin and, and, and he has died to sin because Christ died for him. And he places his whole, um, his whole faith on the fact that Jesus took upon him his sins. And it says here, we read it in towards the very end, that to wit, that is to know, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and had committed unto us the word of reconciliation. For he hath made, this is verse 21, for he had made, God had made Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. The young man this morning that was baptized is placing his entire future on this statement that God made Jesus to be sin for him and that he took Jesus took upon him all his sins and that's why when it says here that for because that if one died for all meaning if Jesus died for all of man then we're all dead and so this morning in in Ancaster that young man made that public declaration through the act of baptism that, that he is no longer the person he used to be. And that God has, because of that faith, that his sins were placed upon Christ and the penalty of sin, which was death, he has borne in his body that Christ has borne on behalf of this young man, on behalf of everyone that believes this, he is no longer himself. And because of that faith, God transforms him. So there's two things here that are happening. You believe, God transforms. You believe, God justifies. The very thing God requires of man is a very simple thing, which is simply to believe. Simply to believe. Believe that, 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 that your sin, that the sin that separates us from God was dealt with in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that belief causes us to be justified in God's eyes. And God then does an operation. He changes our heart and he changes our mind so that we have a completely different opinion of God and of his word. And we also are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, which in this chapter is referred to as the earnest of the Spirit. And the word earnest in verse 5 means a down payment, a deposit. It is sort of like a, in, in, in contract terms, we talk about bid bonds to, to when, we, when, when we, at work, when we bid on, on major projects, we, we, have to, we have to show, um, guarantee that we, are, we have the resources, both financially and in manpower, to carry out the project. Because you're never going to hire someone who says, oh, yeah, yeah, I can do it all, and then you find out that they don't even have the resources, they don't even have the financial means to, to, to carry the initial costs to carry out a project. And in much the same way, God gives us a guarantee that he's going to fulfill his promise to us. And he does this with the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit to not only give us direction in life, not only to teach us 
and to reveal God's will for us, but it's also a continuing reassurance in our hearts that God is going to fulfill the very thing he started in our lives, and he's going to bring it to completion. He's going to bring it to that perfection, that wholeness that God intends in our lives. That's a great promise. But it all, it's all predicated on a simple word, which is belief. Everything we do here is based on belief. I come to church, and I stand up in the pulpit, and I do so because I believe this to be true. If I don't believe this is true, I wouldn't waste my time here. I wouldn't come here. If this isn't real, if I don't believe this to be real, I wouldn't be here. So we have to ask ourselves, and that should be the first gate that we would question, is do we really believe this is true? We can't live a life where we half believe something is true and we half believe that it's not true. It's either true or it's, or it's not true. It's an and, it's neither or. It's, a, it's, it's either it is or it isn't. And if we confess that it is true, then how shall we then live? How shall we then live? Is our life being consistent with what we claim to believe? Our whole house of faith, the Bible talks about, uses the expression, this house of faith. Your whole life is a, is, is a, is a building built upon faith. Our whole life, we live, we live out our life as Christians based on faith. But if our faith isn't real, if our belief, if we're not really believing, then the whole thing comes apart. The whole thing completely falls apart. And that's a serious issue. So Apostle Paul talks about this desire, and he had every right to speak this way, that, that he groans in his body because he suffered so much in order to, to further the kingdom of God. His work in the ministry, in, 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 in uh, evangelization, in starting new churches, in helping churches grow that were started, in having the care of all the churches, and all the different things that he experienced along the way, uh, he paid the price physically. There, there, was, there was a lot of suffering that he went through. And if there was anyone that groaned in his body and had a desire to be moved and to be swallowed up, as it says here, swallowed up by life or of life, in other words, that God would eventually finally redeem him physically and that he could be with his maker forever, he was, one, he was such a person. But he tells us here that it's, it's better for him, he's told us in other scriptures, that it's better for him to, for their sake, that he would still tarry in, his, in the body. But he talks about this desire to be absent, to, to be swallowed up by life, and to no longer be in the body, but to be present with the Lord. And he uses a statement here um, in verse 6, or verse 5, Now he that hath wrought or, or made... He that had made us for this, for this selfsame thing, this purpose, is, is God who, who hath also given unto us the down payment or the earnest of, his, of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident. We are always confident 
because God has given us the Spirit. Our confidence is, is, is strengthened, and we are reminded of this because we have the Spirit of God living in us. How do we know that? How do we, how do we validate that statement in our lives? Now, in the end, we are living in a time, I believe we're living in a time that's going to change very, very rapidly. I believe that this is a time where, if anything, we should be preparing ourselves, we should be strengthening the foundations and the structural supports of our house of faith in order to prepare for the time that is coming. The time that is coming is going to be completely unprecedented. There has never been anything like it in history. It's going to test the very faith that we believe, that we cling to. It's going to be tested so well, so hard, like it has never been tested before. There has never, there will never, there has never been a time in history like the time that we are going to face. And so we have to know we have to know for ourselves, not because we come together and we associate with uh, an organization like the Apostolic Christian Church Nazarene. That isn't enough. We need to know personally on a personal basis when we are alone, when everything else is removed from us, when it's just you and you alone. We have to know what we stand on. We have to know and be fully persuaded, the Bible says, and have that full assurance that what we believe is true. Because the time will come where we will be tested to that point. Where we cannot rely on our, on our brother or sister or family member. It'll be, a, it'll be a single decision, a singular decision done yourself, myself, that what we believe is true and that we're going to cling to it. So based on that, how do you validate today? How do you know that what you believe is true? How do you know? that you actually have the earnest of the Spirit? How do you know that it's actually evident in your life daily? Have you thought about it? You can't just go on a basis of an emotion. You cannot go basically on an emotion. And you cannot fall back on, on heritage, on, your, on what your last name is and what family you are from, whether you're the third or fourth generation believer. These are things you cannot fall upon you have to fall upon a conviction of faith that is unmovable, unshakable, regardless of what you see before you. That's the most important thing. And today, in this time that we live in, we have to anchor that structure. We have to strengthen and bolster that support. This is the time to do it. But I'm afraid that this is the time we are not doing that. We are lulled in a sense of false security. In many ways, we've embraced materialism and the fact that we live in a very tolerant society that we think we can, we can play both games. We can be on both sides. And that somehow um, this, this society and, and, and this nation that was based, was founded, well, it was founded, Canada on, on, on the British Commonwealth and the U.S. on on, on the uh, Judeo-Christian principles. Both of them were Judeo-Christian principles. It, it's unfathomable for some of us to believe that this, this nation would somehow turn on its heritage, 
its, its history and begin to have to be very oppressive or antagonistic towards Christians. We have a, a, a false sense that that isn't going to happen here. But the signs of the time suggest that that isn't the case. The, the, the signs suggest that, that we are living in a society that defines uh, tolerance in, in not in our favor, that sees Christianity as, uh, and, and for whatever reason, it doesn't see all the other religions, but, it's, but it, it singles out Christianity as, a, as a, a belief system that is non-tolerant, that is uh, full of bigotry, and that is discriminating towards the, the society that we live in. And we are not reacting well to that we are perhaps a little bit more drawn back and, and um, perhaps we may find just a little bit more, we may choose to, okay, we're going to blend a little better with our society so that we don't stick out. Or if we feel uncomfortable with blending a little more with our society so that we stick out, then we feel that there's comfort in numbers. We're going to spend a little bit more time with believers because there's comfort with numbers. If we're, if we're entertaining any of those two ideas, we, still, we really need to think. If we're feeling uncomfortable about the changes in our society, we have to project that forward and say, okay, there's going to come a point where I'm going to have to stand up for what I believe, and it's not going to be comfortable. Apostle Paul could say, we are confident. I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, in other words, to, to have this tabernacle dissolved and to, to be dead, than, um, or, uh, and to be present with the Lord. And he says, therefore, or wherefore, in verse 9, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. Because while it is, a, it is nice to think that God can take us before the times get difficult, and we're going to have to face some difficult circumstances, uncomfortable, painful circumstances. We would rather be absent from this body and present with the Lord. But that's not his point. His point is that, that given that understanding that in the end, we're all going to have to face him, I'm going to labor. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Because just because this body dies and we escape a situation in our society that's uncomfortable, the reality is that we're going to face our maker. And we need to think about what that means. Everyone is going to face God. Everyone is going to have to give account of what they did in their body. As it says here, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done whether it be good or bad, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. Now, nobody wants to state that. We want to always, well, that's not necessarily true, but perhaps you may hear a prevailing message outside about Christ that God is all-loving, and he is, and he's, and he's, he's all-forgiving. 
He, he wants to reconcile all of, all of humanity unto himself in, 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 in the person of his son. But once he reconciles us, God is a just God. And he cannot tolerate sin. And the price that he paid in reconciling you and me unto himself demands of us that we labor for him. That we labor for him. Because in the end, we're going to have to stand before him and we're going to have to give account what we did in our bodies. Our bodies are not for ourselves, but they are vessels and instruments to be used in the hand of God. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, and it is terror. There's a scripture And it escapes me at this very minute. Isaiah chapter 28. Now Isaiah chapter 28 is a story about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It's about how God warned uh, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and told them, you know, you are relying so much on your, your wealth. You are a very proud, very arrogant nation. And I've tried to speak to you, and you're not listening. And then he turns around and, and says to the southern kingdom, to Judah, that, you know, why, you, you know, you're, look, at, look at your older, look at your brothers up in the northern kingdom and see that the, the judgment that's going to come and the judgment that, was, that God was going to bring upon his rebellious people was through the Assyrian Empire. And the, um, the southern kingdom said, well, the, we're not really concerned about this judgment because we've, and, and the, the prophet, as God speaking through the prophet, has interpreted or told us precisely the kind of covenant they've made in order to secure for themselves uh, a deliverance from the Assyrian, the scourge of the, the Assyrians. And he says in verse 15, uh, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with hell, are we at agreement when the overflowing scourge, which is means when the Assyrians pass through our land, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. And then the prophet goes on to say, well, you know, um, all those things that you've relied on, they're all going to fall apart, and, and it's going to overtake you. You've built your whole life upon these lies. You've You've, you've risked your whole security on, on, a, on a false premise. And when judgment comes, it's going to overflow and overtake you. And it says here on verse 19, From the time that it goeth forth, meaning the, the judgment of the Assyrians in the land, it shall, it, forth, it shall take you or overtake you. For morning by morning shall it pass over by day and by night, and it shall be a vexation only to understand the report. And what this means, I looked this up, the word vexation here means terror. 
that when you finally get it, when you finally get it, that you've built your house upon a premise of lies, and when you see the invasion of the Assyrians crawling over the wall and creating tremendous atrocities in your cities, just to understand that concept, just to understand the truth of that statement is going to bring terror to you. Terror. And God's terror is significantly greater than that. And so when Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, as we were reading, knowing the terror of the Lord, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade man, we need to do this. We need to make sure that the message that comes forth from the pulpit here is one that does not hide the full counsel of God, but encourages us to labor labor with our bodies while we have the opportunity to labor and to work for the Lord. May the Lord add to his word whatever is lacking. Amen. Brother, please select a hymn. Hymn number 74, verses 1, 2, and 7.
Father, please lead us in the Lord's Prayer. Oh, dear God, our Heavenly Father, even today you gather us together in thine sanctuary. You've given us today this beautiful day to enjoy and learn from thee. And again, dear Heavenly Father, you're giving us that wisdom and at the same time you're reminding us to watch the times and be wise. We understand thy warnings dear Heavenly Father and pray thee to give us thy wisdom because the time is at hand as we understood we cannot count dear Holy Father on the past that it was here without persecution that the faith was tolerated we know that might be very soon that there will be obstacles on our fate, road, and persecution as they may come. However, we are reminded again who, are the, who is the one we are serving, dear Heavenly Father? Who is the one that will be sitting on that judgment seat? that everyone, the good and the bad, will be coming to. Dear Holy Father, rule amongst us, protect us, lead us and guide us like a little hand of little children. In thy hand, let our hand be. And you invite everybody, that's what we want to say in this week, week prayer. In the book of Revelation, who is unjust? Let him be unjust still. Who is filthy? To be filthy still. Who is just and who is holy? be holy still because the time is at hand however we pray dear Heavenly Father for extension of the days of mercy that those ones that hear this voice this reminder and this invitation to convert and come to thee not to postpone not to forget not to wait for another day to come, but to 
reconciled with thee, to confess, to be at peace with thee. Because the times of the Gentiles will be coming to an end. And we pray thee, Heavenly Father, let all these that in thy number that may come in and be justified, be written in the book of Lamb, be washed by his atoning blood. Dear Heavenly Father, there's much to be said. However, our power is weak. Our vision is blurry. As the Apostle said, we see now, like through the glass. But the time will come when we'll see. See brightly and clearly. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray thee for those that could not come, that those that are in their hospital beds, whether weak or ill, or bound by their old, their, uh, their old age. Visit everybody. Give the needy what they need. Be the physician. You're the one among, uh, above the, every other physician. Heal us, dear Heavenly Father. Make us Make possible that we can see thy holy face one day. Dear Heavenly Father, be with us and stay with us this day. And not only today, but forevermore. That's what we ask and pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I would say that perhaps in the last three years or so, I've had a growing, um, growing desire in my heart, in my mind, that is pressing me to believe that the time is short and that that we need to we need to think differently as far as what does it really mean to be a Christian in this time. And I, I feel, and I, as I share with you, I feel guilty that in many ways I have been, I have deceived myself to, to take for granted what I have as a gift of, of God, salvation, and His Spirit. But over these last three years, I, I have felt a greater urgency, and, and the urgency doesn't stop. It's, it's, it continues to grow in me that, that I need to redeem the time that I have left. And I'm not, I'm not even 50 yet, but I feel that there is, that we are approaching a time that's going to change very, very rapidly. And 
we need to have wisdom. We need to know the Word of God very well, and we need to live it out. So when I asked the question earlier, how do you validate that you have the Holy Spirit? The way you do that is you look into his word and you live out his word and God will reveal himself in your life in a supernatural, remarkable way. And I know that because I have experienced that. The, the way God moves and the way he can move in, in each of our lives individually is undeniable to you and to me. But that is only experienced when you draw close to him, when you draw really close to him. See, God, the point in the scripture is that God's sacrifice was so great for our deliverance, he demands nothing less than 100% of who you are. When when the, the scribe asked Jesus, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? You know, Jesus said, well, what does the law say? Well, he says, well, you know, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. There's nothing left. There's nothing left. If you can love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, there's nothing left. And when we stand before God, God is going to ask the question, did you love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? And we won't find excuses to justify why we didn't love him with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our heart, because it will be so self-evident. Today, now, is the opportunity to live those four things out. Now is the time, and I believe that's what I am feeling personally. I am being challenged personally, I believe, by the Holy Spirit, whether I'm really loving God with all my mind, all my soul, all my strength, and all my heart. And, and I tell you, I am thrilled that I'm being challenged. I am thrilled that I am being shaken to the very core of my belief because I know that this is going to, in the end, is going to draw me closer to God. So we have to establish that. And we, have, we are given that opportunity now. And it's a very personal thing. I can't tell you whether you're loving God with all your mind, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. I cannot, I cannot make that judgment call. You can. You can. May the Lord open our eyes to assess that in our lives. This concludes our service. Amen.